So normally this is when we would review our memory verse for the month, and after we've just sung it together, this next part should be a piece of cake for everyone, right? Um, and so let's, let's put uh, on the screen most of the verse, uh, and let's see if we can, uh, we can recite this together, Galatians 2.20. I have been with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The prayer is that that would, that truth would embed itself deep into our hearts uh, and that it would shape our very existence, shape the very way we walk through life, remembering uh, that our old self, if, if we have trusted in Jesus, our old self has been crucified with Christ. We're, I'm not who I was anymore in Christ. I, I've been transformed. I've been changed. And now the life that I live, I don't live on my own. Christ, God himself, lives in me. And so the life I live, I live by faith in him who loved me, the one who gave himself for me in the greatest act of generosity the world has ever known. That God is with me, empowering me. May that truth shape our hope and the way that we live our lives seeking to please the Lord. Well, I hope you found Acts uh, chapter 21. Uh, we're just uh, grabbing the last few verses of 21, and then we're diving into chapter uh, 22 today. Last week, we saw what happened when Paul came to Jerusalem. So James and uh, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem shared with Paul that there was a rumor that had been started about him. The, the Jews there in Jerusalem, the believers uh, in the church in Jerusalem who, who came from a Jewish background, were being told that Paul was going around teaching against the law, that he was anti-law, anti-Judaism. Uh, uh, and, and Paul agreed to a plan that the elders of the church presented to him to squash that rumor. Uh, he would go with uh, four men who were under a vow, and he would go to the temple to participate in a Jewish custom, a, a ritual at the temple in accordance with the law in order to show that he was not against um, Jews who had become Christians, he wasn't against them practicing Jewish customs even still as, as Christians. But when Paul went to the temple to do this, uh, there were some Jews from Asia who were there, and they accused him of teaching against the law and teaching against the Jewish people and teaching against the temple. And they also falsely accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple where they were not supposed to be. Well, these accusations caused an uproar. The whole city of Jerusalem is in turmoil. Uh, Paul's life was being threatened, and, and a, a government military official, uh, the Roman Tribune, got involved, uh, arrested Paul, and he was going to bring him back into the uh, barracks to figure out what was going on. And that's where we pick up the story today. Uh, so our, uh, our text today is uh, a bit longer, um, 
And so uh, normally our custom is uh, to stand in honor of the reading of God's word, uh, and that's meant to help us focus on the Word of God, um, but we certainly don't want standing to be a distraction from the Word of God, and so I'll, I'm going to let you sit today as we read, uh, but let's still focus our attention on uh, the Word of God starting in uh, Acts 21, verse 37, and we'll read through verse 29 of chapter 22. So Acts 21, starting in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way, And drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. 
because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful? For you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, when Jesus was just about to ascend to heaven, back when Paul was still going by the name of Saul and was still an unconverted Pharisee, Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So from the outset, this idea of being a witness is critical, central to the book of Acts. Being a witness involves two steps. Witnessing something and then bearing witness about that something. Or we could say you see and hear and then you testify. To what you have seen and heard. That's what a witness does. A witness sees and hears and then testifies to what they have seen and heard. Well, so fast forward from Acts 1 to Acts 21. Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and the good news of Jesus Christ spread, starting in Jerusalem. The witness began in Jerusalem and then spread like wildfire as the witnesses of Jesus testified to the good news about Jesus, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. In that time, Paul the Pharisee became Paul the witness, and he joined in taking this gospel to the ends of the earth and testifying to who Jesus is. Well, now in Acts 21, the witness is back in Jerusalem. And what do we see Paul doing in Jerusalem? 
testifying, bearing witness. He has seen and heard amazing things. And so he testifies to what he has seen and heard. Uh, When you have seen who God is and what he has done, when you've heard his voice and you've heard the good news of the gospel, you can't help but to testify about all that you have seen and heard. But the reality is there are obstacles that get in the way of our seeing and hearing correctly at times. And on the other hand, there are also pursuits that distract us from testifying. There are, when when it comes to being a witness of Jesus, both in terms of seeing and hearing, and in terms of testifying to what we've seen and heard, there are challenges on both fronts. But my burden for us as we approach Acts 21 and 22 is that we would learn from Paul's example and that we would grow in our delight to see God and hear his word and that we would grow in our delight to testify to what we have seen and heard. Uh, So we'll look at this text in four sections. Uh, First, we're going to see Paul taking the opportunity to testify. And then as he testifies, he's remembering the call to testify that Jesus gave him. Then we're going to see the testimony hindered, and finally the testimony helped. So let's take this one by one. First of all, taking the opportunity to testify. So the tribune is taking Paul back into the barracks, and uh, Paul wants to pause, and he asks if he can speak to the tribune. Uh, Notice even just the respect of that. He doesn't just say something. He asks, can I say something to you? Uh, But when the tribune heard Paul speak to him in Greek, he was thrown for a loop because he thought he was someone else. He said, wait a second, I thought you were that Egyptian. There had been this Egyptian uh, man recently who who started an insurrection. And uh, he he led this band of thugs called, they were nicknamed the Assassins or the Dagger Men. And uh, they had caused this insurrection. There had been an uproar in the city. And so the tribune thought, oh, here's this uproar again. It must be that Egyptian back. And Paul's like, no, 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 I, I'm not that Egyptian. I'm actually not an Egyptian at all. I'm Jewish. And I don't mean any violence or harm to anyone. Paul also explained that he was actually from a prominent city within the Roman Empire. He's from Tarsus. And, and he leveraged this, this status as who he was uh, as an opportunity to speak to the crowd. So when the tribune heard all this, he agreed to let Paul speak to the people. But why would Paul want to speak to this crowd of people? I mean, this is the crowd who's been shouting at him, who wants to kill him, and he's like feet away from safety inside the barracks, why would he stop and turn around and want to address this crowd that is out to kill him? Why is he talking to them? To testify. 
Because witnesses bear witness. Witnesses testify. As he addressed them, Paul took the opportunity to testify. And and he says, look at verse 1 of chapter 22. He says, hear the defense that I now make before you. That's what he's going to offer to them in this speech, a defense. Uh, So that word is is the Greek word apologia. It's the word that we get our word apologetics from. And uh, Howard Marshall makes a really important observation about this word apologia. The word does mean defense, as it's translated here, it means a defense, but it also means more than that. It also means testimony. So in this speech, we will hear Paul defend himself. Uh, he'll, he'll give an answer to these accusations in the form of explaining that he's not anti-Jewish. In fact, you might have noticed as we read, at every chance he gets, he shows the common ground that he shares with his Jewish audience as a Jew himself. But Paul isn't just trying to clear his name. He is not just defending himself against these accusations. He is also testifying about Jesus, who saved him and cleansed him from his sin. He testifies to how Jesus changed his life. And he's going to testify to how Jesus called him, Paul, to fulfill this plan of redemption that God has always had for his people. So essentially, Paul's testimony to this crowd is, I was just like you. And then I met the Messiah, and he changed my life. And in doing this, Paul not only refutes the crowd's accusations, he also puts on display the amazing Messiah, Jesus, who can change their lives too if they would only trust in him. So he takes the opportunity to testify. And as he does, he begins by remembering the call to testify, remembering how Jesus called him to testify. So as we get into Paul's speech in chapter 22, from the outset, Paul establishes common ground with his Jewish audience. Look in verse 1 again. He addresses them as brothers and fathers. He, he addresses them as family. Uh, we're from the same, not actual tribe, but tribes. We're from the same tribes. It's from the same nation. Um, he addressed them in, in the common language of the Jews, uh, likely Aramaic, which is spoken by them at that time. And when he addressed them in their language, that really got their attention. They got even more quiet than they had already been, and they were listening. What is this guy speaking to us in our own language? Well, Paul starts by sharing his Jewish background. In so many ways, he was just like them. He was a Jew uh, who, who grew up in Jerusalem. Uh, now, he was born in Tarsus, but he was raised in Jerusalem. And in so many ways, his background and his kind of spiritual pedigree was something that they should find very respectable. He was educated by a member of the Jewish council, Gamaliel, who, who taught him the, the strict, conservative, rigorous study of the law according to the, the way of the Pharisees. Uh, he was zealous for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as he says, as all of you are this day. So again, common ground. You're zealous for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
I was zealous for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too. Furthermore, he was so zealous, he even persecuted the people who belonged to the way of Jesus that Paul was now a part of. He bound Christians. He arrested them, delivered them to prison. And keep in mind, Paul is saying this as he himself is bound by chains. So he's saying, I used to do to Christians what you are doing to me as a Christian right now. And to give even further credibility to how zealous he was as a persecutor, he says, the high priest and the whole Jewish council can attest to what I'm saying. I'm not making this up. They know how zealous I was as a Jew. I was just like you. And this zeal for persecution led him all the way to Damascus, not just in Jerusalem. He goes all the way to Damascus. And that's where the next phase of his story takes place. Paul moves on then to describe his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was journeying. Uh, It was high noon, but a light brighter than the noon sun shone around him. Uh, This was not a natural light. This was a supernatural light from heaven, the text says. Uh, This is the very glory of God shining on Paul at midday. And out of this glory cloud came a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as Saul, Paul, hears this voice coming from the glory of heaven, he asks, who is this? Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting. So as Paul says this, now now things are starting to heat up. He's shared a lot of common ground. He's he's said a lot of things that he has in common with uh, his Jewish audience, things that they would respect. But all of a sudden now, he's saying, wait, who appeared to Paul in divine glory from heaven? Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. Okay, so this is getting a little little bit more scandalous for the Jewish audience because he is saying, the resurrected Jesus spoke to me from heaven. And this event, this light, this voice, uh, Paul didn't make it up. There were witnesses. Uh, There were those with him who saw this happen. Um, You can go back and uh, see the story as Luke told it back in Acts 9. And when we put Acts 9 and Acts 22 together, we can understand that Um, Those who were with Paul saw this light, but they didn't see who it was who was speaking to Paul. Uh, They heard a sound, but they didn't hear what this voice was saying to him. Or we could use language from Isaiah that they were seeing, but they didn't see. They were hearing, but they didn't understand. That's a parable of what we're about to see in a moment, by the way. In any case, those who were with Paul witnessed this event. And so they could attest to the fact that Paul's not making this up. This really did happen. There really was a light. There really was a voice. Something happened on the road to Damascus. Well, so Jesus then sends Paul on to Damascus, and there he would receive further instructions. Uh, But 
Paul had been blinded by the light, and so he had to be led by the hand to Damascus. Paul arrives in Damascus, and there he meets a disciple of Jesus named Ananias. Now, notice how Paul describes Ananias to his Jewish audience. Ananias was a devout man according to the law. So he's trying to show his audience that this is a man who was zealous for the law, just like they are. And Ananias also was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived in Damascus. So uh, the Jews that Paul was speaking to needed to know that Ananias had a strong reputation among the Jewish community. Uh, And Jesus also performs a miracle through Ananias. Uh, Paul had been blinded, and he receives back his sight. So I mean, if a real miracle takes place like this, then this Jesus who sent Ananias must really be divine. Uh, so in all this, he gives this um, description of who Ananias is, why they should uh, respect him and, um, and listen when Ananias is affirming Paul. And as Paul tells the story, he shares how Ananias shared with Paul the mission that Jesus had for Paul. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 22. Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So Ananias says that Paul has been appointed by the God of our fathers. What happened to Paul was the action of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What was it that happened? Well, Ananias says that this God had given Paul three privileges. First, God revealed his will to Paul. So God's redemptive purposes, uh, Paul will go on to write and and describe them as a a mystery, something that had been previously hidden that now in Christ had been revealed that the apostles then testified to. So God's redemptive purposes, his will had been previously hidden, but he chose to reveal this plan to Paul and through Paul. So God revealed his will to Paul. Second, God showed Paul the righteous one. So this is a a title for the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah 53, um, uh, the Messiah is referred to as the righteous one. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So when God showed Paul Jesus of Nazareth, he was showing Paul the righteous one, the Messiah of God. So God revealed his will to Paul. He revealed the righteous one, the Messiah to Paul. And then third, God allowed Paul to hear his voice. Wait, who who had spoken to Paul? Jesus, but, to paraphrase Jesus, if you've heard him, you've heard the Father. God allowed Paul to hear his voice, to know his will, to see the Messiah. God had graciously given Paul the privilege of 
hearing and seeing amazing things, of witnessing things that were amazing. For what purpose? So that Paul would be a witness for this God and bear witness about everything that he had seen and heard. Uh, The God of Abraham revealed his will to Paul so that Paul would reveal God's will to the world. He showed Paul the righteous one so Paul would bear witness to the righteous one, to the world. Uh, He spoke to Paul with his voice so that Paul would then speak God's message to the world. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in this moment even. He's testifying before the Jews that day of what he had seen and heard. When you have seen and heard the God that Paul saw and heard, you will testify. Consider, if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, consider what we have seen and heard. God has spoken to us in his word. The creator God, the almighty. We can hear the voice of the almighty. We can know God's plans, his will, his purpose for creation and for redemption. We can know how to be reconciled to the God that our sin separated us from. If we're in Christ, God has revealed his son to us. We've come to know the Messiah. We've come to know the one who loved us and gave himself for us. The one who now lives in us if we belong to him. And so when we delight in this God and delight in seeing who he is and hearing him, we will want to testify about the amazing things he has shown us, he has spoken to us. As Paul continues, after Ananias shared this mission that Jesus was calling Paul to, there was just one thing left to do. Paul needed to trust in Jesus for the first time. He he needed to become a Christian. Look at verse 16. Ananias says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Uh, Be saved. Become a Christian. So uh, we do need to understand uh, as we hear Ananias' words here, this verse is not teaching that baptism is a work that you have to do in order to have your sins washed away. Um, the, The whole testimony of Scripture is clear. We are saved by grace as we call on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith. Uh, So we're not saved or or cleansed by our works that we do. We're saved by faith. Uh, Baptism is a way that a new believer testifies to their faith in Jesus who washes their sins away. Uh, This text should teach us a couple of things, though, as we look at this. Uh, So first, because baptism is a way to testify of how Jesus cleanses us of sin and washes away our sin, uh, baptism is not for people who haven't called on the name of Jesus, who haven't had their sins washed away. But second, the flip side of that is baptism is for anyone who has trusted in Jesus to cleanse them of their sins and has had their, their sins washed away. Uh, in other words, 
you don't have to reach a certain level, high status of Christian maturity in order to be baptized. No, baptism is the first step of the Christian life for someone who has faith in Jesus. So if you trust in Jesus to wash away your sins, you're ready to be baptized and to testify to what Jesus has done for you. And that's what Paul does here. He calls on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith, and Jesus washes his sins away, cleanses him of his guilt, cleanses him, forgives him, and Paul testified to what Jesus did by being baptized. So, Paul has been remembering Jesus' call on him to testify. And he continues telling the story, but as he does, what we're going to see is that the testimony hindered here in a moment. The testimony hindered. Paul goes on to tell a story uh, that we actually don't have anywhere else in Scripture. This moment of him going to Jerusalem and, and praying in the temple. Now this was important for this Jewish audience who was accusing him of being against the temple He's telling them a story of how he, as a Christian, went to go worship in the temple. He, he was not anti-temple. The God of the Old Covenant is the God of the New Covenant. And in the early days of the church, the Jews who became disciples of Jesus continued to go to the, worship, uh, go to the temple and worship the same God as they had previously done. So Paul was not anti-temple. He's praying in the temple, worshiping in the temple. And as he was, he fell into a trance. And the Lord Jesus appeared to him. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to Paul as he was praying in the temple, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Paul, or Jesus rather, Jesus tells Paul to book it out of Jerusalem, because when Paul testifies to, uh, and bears witness to Jesus, to the Jews there in Jerusalem, they're not going to believe it. They're not going to receive this testimony. But Paul then responds by giving reasons why the Jews in Jerusalem should believe him. Uh, he says in verses 19 and 20, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So basically he says, Jesus, they know how committed I was, how zealous I was. And so if I've changed, the only explanation must be something truly supernatural. They'll have to believe me. But pro tip, it's never a good idea to argue with Jesus. So Paul shares Jesus' response in verse 21. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Jesus commanded Paul to leave Jerusalem where they would not receive the message about the Messiah. And instead, Jesus called Paul to take the good news of the kingdom far away from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. And this is what finally crossed the line for the Jewish audience. This was when they said, no, we can't take any more of this. Verse 22, 
up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So apparently they could stomach him saying that the resurrected Jesus spoke to him from heaven. Apparently, they could handle hearing that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had revealed the righteous one to Paul. But leaving Jerusalem to go to the Gentiles, that's too far. Kill him. This was, after all, remember why Paul was in trouble with this crowd to begin with. Because they were accusing him of bringing Gentiles into the temple where they were not supposed to be. They were falsely accusing him of this. There was a hostility against the Gentiles. This is what caused a hostility against Paul for these Jews. So they hear the Messiah supposedly telling Paul to go to the Gentiles. That's what crosses the line. But what they were missing, what these Jews in Jerusalem were missing, is that God's plan always included the Gentiles. God's plan was always for his nation Israel to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, all the nations. Uh, They heard Paul and they heard that Christianity was reaching out to the Gentiles. Well, they saw that as something new, as a, a distortion of what God had been up to in his plan of redemption. But the truth is that they were the ones who were out of step with God's plan of redemption. His will that he had always revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, God says this in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 about the Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, the Gentiles. In verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 42, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind. Ring any bells? Uh, To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God's purpose for Israel always included that they would be a light to the Gentiles, a blessing for the nations. And now God has fulfilled that purpose in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. But these Jews in Jerusalem were outraged that Paul would claim that the Messiah called them to go to the Gentiles. And their outrage proved they had no idea what they were talking about. They did not understand the heart of the God they claimed to worship. God's heart for all the nations of the earth. And so this crowd hears Paul and they interrupt him. Whatever else he was about to say, we don't have it because they stopped him. They interrupted him with hostility. They hated him so much, they said he should not be allowed to live They shout at him. They display physical signs of judgment, throwing their cloaks off, flinging dust into the air. And since this crowd is disrupted again, the tribune finally just brought Paul into the barracks after all. How sad is this scene? I mean, you know, in the thick of acts, 
um, as, as the Jews are so often sort of, you know, kind of the bad guys in the narrative, it's kind of easy to forget that if we were reading an Old Testament story, you know, the Jews are the good guys. The Jews are God's people. His chosen people who he gave his law, he gave his covenant. And here, Paul is testifying about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He testifies that the Messiah that they hoped for had come. Uh, he testified that the Messiah had revealed himself to him and he had changed his life and he had washed away his sins as he promised he would do. And he, he called him to fulfill his will. And these Jewish people reject the very God they claim to worship. Seeing they did not see. Hearing they did not understand. They missed God and they missed his purposes because they were blinded and deafened by their man-made tradition. Paul was not out of step with biblical Judaism. These Jews in Jerusalem were out of step with what God had been doing all throughout this time. The Jews there, their tradition, their upbringing, their culture, this man-made tradition that was foreign from what God had always been up to, that is what they were placing their hope in. Their man-made tradition blinded their eyes so that they couldn't see what God was up to, deafened their ears so they couldn't hear the truth of his gospel. Their tradition and upbringing caused them to miss the very things that God wanted them to see and hear. Their culture their nationalism caused them to be bigoted against the very people God wanted them to bless and to testify to. And we just need to observe here, man-made tradition will keep you from seeing who God is and will keep you from hearing what God says. Man-made tradition will keep you from seeing who God is and hearing what God says in his word. And, and by man-made tradition, uh, it can be a religious tradition like this, uh, like we see in these Jews in Jerusalem. But man-made tradition can take on a lot of different forms for a lot of different people. It can be religious tradition. It can be cultural tradition. It can be uh, ideological tradition. And, and tradition, traditions aren't all bad. I'm a big fan of good traditions, honestly. Uh, but traditions become bad when they hinder us from seeing God and hearing clearly what he has said in his word. Uh, they become bad when our traditions become a lens through which we interpret Scripture. Instead, we need always to have the Bible as our authority, and evaluate our traditions through the lens of Scripture. So, my tradition says this, and hey, the Bible says that too. All right, that's a good part of the tradition. If my tradition values this, and I look to the Bible, and hey, the Bible values that too. Okay, that's a good part of the tradition. That's a keeper. But if my tradition says this is not true, 
But the Bible says this is true, well, then I reject that part of my tradition. If my tradition says I should hate those people, but the Bible says I should love those people, well then, so long tradition. I part ways with that, and I stick with the authority of God's word. We always need to have the Bible as our authority. And when that is true, we will see clearly who God is and hear clearly what he wants to say. But if we give ourselves instead to man-made religious traditions, man-made cultural traditions, man-made ideological traditions, those will keep us from seeing clearly who God is and hearing clearly what he has said. Well, after the testimony is hindered, finally we see here the testimony helped at the end of chapter 22. The tribune brings Paul into the barracks and he's going to torture him and interrogate him. He still didn't understand what Paul had done, but if it made the crowd that angry, it's got to be bad. So he's going to get to the bottom of it and he's just going to get some straight answers. Well, just when Paul had been stretched out to be whipped, he turns to the centurion who is overseeing his interrogation and he asks him a question. Look at verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Uh, the answer is no, it is not lawful. It is illegal to beat a Roman citizen who had not yet been convicted of a crime. They just didn't realize that Paul was a Roman citizen. So the centurion hears this and he gets spooked. He goes to the tribune, informs his boss of what Paul had said. And the tribune then comes to Paul and questions him about his citizenship. And uh, he asks him, are you a citizen? He says, yes. Well, so the tribune citizen also, member of the Roman government, uh, almost maybe in a little bit of an arrogant way, he said, oh yeah, I, I bought my citizenship for a large sum of money. But Paul explains, I was, actually, I was actually born a citizen. And this was a significant status to have within the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, in a sense, Paul's citizenship was kind of more valid than the Tribune's citizenship actually, because he was a citizen by birth. And this brought an immediate end to the interrogation process. No torture. Uh, those who were going to beat him leave immediately. And the tribune, who was going to get down to the bottom of this, is all of a sudden backing up and afraid because he had come dangerously close to doing what was illegal, to breaking the law. And if I'm the tribune at this point, I don't know what's going on. Are you the Egyptian, the insurrectionist, the daggerman? No? Okay. Okay, well, you're someone I need to torture. No? Oh, okay, I, I have no idea who this is or what is going on. In this scene, Paul, and we're going to see this consistently throughout his trial, his defense. Paul takes advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen. He utilizes it. He brings it up. And we've seen this before, right? Whenever um, uh, Paul was in prison in uh, uh, Philippi. 
So uh, he takes advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen. But notice what Paul is not doing in this text. He's not fighting the Roman government. He's taking advantage of his rights, but he's not fighting the secular government. Throughout this text, we've seen Paul has been nothing but respectful. Remember, he, he asks permission to speak to the tribune in the first place. And then once he has been given the opportunity to speak to him, he respectfully asks him if he can speak to the crowd. He, he makes it clear to the tribune that he means no harm. Uh, even as he is uh, getting ready to be tortured, he, he asks the centurion a question. He doesn't bark out an accusation. He takes advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen, but he's not fighting the secular government. And one of the things we need to recognize here is that the Christianity of the New Testament is not a Christianity at war with secular government. Consistently, we see that in Scripture. The Christianity of the New Testament is not a Christianity at war with the secular government. In fact, secular government, when it is just, can actually be an ally to Christianity and to the spread of the gospel. Again, throughout Paul's uh, defense in the rest of the books or the chapters of Acts, God is going to sovereignly use the Roman government, the Roman justice system, as his instrument to protect Paul and in so doing protect and preserve the witness and spread of the gospel through Paul as Paul seeks to testify to Jesus. And so what I want us to see here is that we need to beware of the lie that our mission is ever to fight the government. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever see that as Christians, our mission is to fight the government. Now granted, we are not promised a government that always works in our favor. Our government may oppress us. Our government may treat us as enemies. But when we make our mission out to be fighting the government, we lose sight of what the real battle is that God has called us to as his people. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So, easy litmus test to, sit, to, to ask the question or answer the question, is this someone I should be waging war against? Are they flesh and blood? then they're not the enemy of my warfare in Christ. Are they a human being? That's not who I'm supposed to be waging war against. Who then? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we make the battle out to be with physical human enemies, we miss what the real battle is. Fighting the government might feel righteous, but it is a distraction from our real mission in Christ. Peter wrote, in fact, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2.
Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. As we see Paul here in Acts 22 assert his Roman citizenship, he is not doing it merely for self-preservation, although God does use it to preserve his life and will continue to do so. He didn't merely do it for self-preservation, and he did not assert his citizenship to pick a fight with his flesh and blood enemy. No. Paul asserted his citizenship so that he could, in Peter's words, live as a servant of God. We've seen it already in Acts. We see it here. We're going to see it continually. He does this and leverages this for the sake of the gospel. He asserts his citizenship so he can stay on mission and continue to testify to the grace of God. So, as we conclude, may we not let obstacles Get in the way of seeing who God is, hearing God's voice. May we not let other pursuits distract us from the real mission of testifying to what we have seen and heard. Instead, may we increasingly delight to see who this God is increasingly delight to hear his word, hear his grace in the gospel. And may we increasingly delight to testify to the amazing things we have seen and heard in Christ. We get to conclude our time of worship today by testifying together at the Lord's table. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.26 about the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are testifying to the grace of the Lord Jesus. So we saw for Paul... In Acts 22, how baptism was an ordinance given by Jesus uh, for us to testify to our faith in the power of the cross. Well, just like baptism is an ordinance that test, where we testify to the power of the cross, so the Lord's Supper is an ordinance given to us by Jesus, and through it we testify to the power of the cross. We testify that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We testify to his body broken for us, his blood shed for us to save us from our sins. 
we gather around the table and bear witness to the fact that the righteous one has washed away our sins and transformed our hearts for all of eternity. Uh, so because